Thank you for joining us here at Crossword Church for this week's message. Our desire is to see people's lives transform as they develop an authentic relationship with Jesus. We would like to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So take a moment and visit us online at mycrosswordchurch.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. And amen. I wrestled with the Lord a little bit about this message today. And um, I thought we were done with the Choices series. And he just said, son, you got to deal with this. And so today, we're at now part three. And we're going to talk about choosing the sanctified life over the self-centered life. And this will be session one. And we're going to talk about the cure for self-centeredness. The cure for self-centeredness. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to start, beginning at verse number 3. Verses 3 and 4, we'll read. Paul writes and he says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Imagine what a place the world would be if human beings would just live by that simple principle. What would be the, the, the state of conflict in our society? Think how different our governments would be, our cities and our communities and our churches, workplaces. Think how different our families would be. Deception and prideful posturing and gossiping would probably be a thing of the past. However, we know that in this fallen world of sinful people, where we live for ourselves, that's not the case. But here's what I believe the Lord wants us to know, is that when we're in the kingdom of God, we are called to live according to these scriptures right here. When Paul the Apostle penned these words to the church in Philippi long ago, he struck directly at the root of the very sinful nature of all men and women. And the root is this, self-centeredness. And so for a brief moment, I want to just talk about how self-centeredness manifests itself in the everydayness of life. Consider for a moment the person that's eaten up with jealousy. Uh, what's actually dominating their thought process at that time? It's squarely themselves. They're thinking of themselves. They are looking at the abundance of others and obsessing because squarely they're thinking about themselves. Specifically, their unmet needs in their lives. Um, if they truly understood what it means to regard others more importantly than themselves, uh, they would find themselves rejoicing in others' people's blessings rather than being envious and jealous of those blessings how about husbands and wives who thoughtlessly and selfishly damage each other's spirits and even destroy their marriages and disperse their families because of their cutting and crushing attitudes and words and actions towards one another 
Imagine the difference that the home would look like if spouses learn how to pray and how to listen and then how to think more highly of each other before opening up their mouths and begin to wield the swords of criticism and accusation and discontent and frustration. Hmm. Church self-centeredness is conceived in our minds and it is confirmed out in our emotions, but it is also communicated in our words, attitudes, and our actions towards one another. I'm sure right now you can think of some self-centered people that's kind of running through your minds. Let me just list a couple more of some manifestations and then we'll get to the next scripture here. Uh, think of a married man or a woman who is consumed with lust and have given themselves over to adultery or pornography. And this is what they will say. You don't understand. I am lonely and I'm not satisfied in this relationship. And squarely what they're focusing on is their needs. Or the person that is consumed with bitterness. And they will say, you don't understand what they've done to me. Person that can't seem to forgive. They'll say, you have now no idea how badly they have hurt me. All of these things are when we focus on ourselves. And we can justify our self-centeredness when we focus on ourselves. The solution to this is found in what Paul writes next in verse number five. Paul says this to this church. He says, you must have the same attitude that Jesus had. I believe today this message is going to be one that's going to be probing us because it's going to require us to do some introspection. Paul writes and he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be clinged to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave, one translation said, of a servant, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him a name or the name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue confessed and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and God the Father. Paul is pointing out that Christ is the supreme example of someone who did not look out for his own interests, but rather he looked out for the interests of his father and the interests of others. He came from glory and humbly dwelled among sinful people. He became sin on the cross by remaining obediently God-centered instead of being rebelliously self-centered. 
The point in all of this is very simple, but it's yet very profound because the cure for our innate self-centeredness is the example of Jesus. Paul states that we're supposed to imitate Christ in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Why? Because we belong to him. We are his children. So here's the question. Was Christ self-centered when he walked the earth? And the answer is a resounding no. And so for us as his followers, we should imitate him. Whenever we insist, church, on having our own way, we are acting completely antithetical, which is a direct opposite of Christ's character in the scriptures. So I'll say this, I'll say this. A self-centered Christian is an anomaly in God's kingdom. It's a gross abnormality, is a monstrous perversion, something completely incompatible with a genuine Christ follower. But yet, we find ourselves living self-centered lives every day. And we hear the word and we sing the word and yet our self-centeredness never really change. One who claims to follow Christ must bear his image, emulate his character and produce his spiritual fruit or else, listen to this, their profession is really a fraud. It is essential to remember the admonition of Paul to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. <laughs> Paul writes to Timothy and he says, but Mark dits. Now, anytime you see these types of words in your scriptures, he's about to say something of great weight and relevance. And so he wants to make sure we get it. He says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. And you almost want to tell Paul, stop, we got it. But he continues, they'll be brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5 said, having a form of godliness but denying the power. Having nothing to, he says, have nothing to do with such people. These are people that's in the church. Hmm. See, we live in a day where we are so consumed upon ourselves, we don't even realize the level of consumption of self that we have. If people were to um, try to calculate how many photos they share on social media, I'm sure they wouldn't even be able to remember. And sometimes people can find themselves walking down the street and if they're not careful, they will walk into either a person or into a pole because we're so busy selfieing ourselves. And we are consumed. There are many expressions of a self-centered society. And so when you look up the word self, there's a lot of other um, uh, words that gets attached to it, such as you know, self-actualization and self-awareness and self-control, self-determination, self-discovery, self-esteem, 
self-identity, self-image, self-improvement, self-indulgence, all these words, as a self-conscious society, we must be careful of becoming too preoccupied with ourselves. Because when we're preoccupied with ourselves, we inevitably become less interested and concerned about others. The others become diminished in our consciousness. Our society has developed many isms. Everybody say isms. And if you look up that word, you know, in in the dictionary, there's a whole lot of isms that our society have developed. But I just want to just talk about three just for a second, and we're going to keep on moving. Uh, The first ism that I want to talk about um, is individualism, uh, which means others really don't matter. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 says, an unfriendly man pursues selfish ends. He defies all sound judgment. When a person is uh, individualistic, they're focusing on their own agenda. And they can't even hear sound counsel. That's what Solomon says. So the motto would go something like this. Do you and do your own thing right now. The next ism that I want to talk about is secularism. In secularism, what it's saying is God doesn't matter. Psalms 10 uh, verse 4 says, In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Listen to that. So the motto in secularism is this. God is irrelevant. God is unnecessary. Would you conclude with me that our society, our culture is raging down the street of secularism today? The next, the third one that I just want to identify real quick is narcissism. Narcissism. Uh, uh, You know, this is all that really matters is me. So my image, the motto is my image is everything. So, so I need as many filters as I can get. The young people know what I'm talking about. Uh, just, just, you know, as many filters as I can get. This is how uh, the psalmist puts it in Psalms 36, verse 2. He says, for in his own eyes, he flatters himself. Wow. Too much to detect or hate his own sin. Y'all hear this? This is all in the scriptures. This is not pastor. Ver- uh, and so we're in a, an increasing uh, narcissistic society today. And we're so consumed on our own selves that we can't see the ugliness of that consumption. The problem with a self-centered person is that they end up worshiping themselves uh, unbeknownst to themselves. They don't recognize that they're actually worshiping themselves. So John... The Baptist said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus has come to lay the axe to the root. If you have your Bibles, turn over with me to Matthew chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to start at verse number 4. We're going to read down to verse 10. Starts out, it says, John clothes were made of camel's hair. 
And he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan. Verse number seven. But he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming uh, to where he was baptizing. And he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Let me just stop there for a second. Now, we understand that John's baptism was the baptism of repentance. And, and, and the challenge sometimes with repentance, uh, we asked this question last Thursday, is sometimes we don't really understand what repentance really is. Or sometimes we trick ourselves in trying to think we understand. Because the fruit of repentance is a changed life and a mind that has been turned back to God. And so, and so let me just continue verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8 says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If, you just keep, if we just keep saying we repent to God, but we keep doing the same thing, we're not re- we are producing any fruit of repentance. Verse 9 says, and do not think that you can say uh, to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of, for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, he makes a distinction that every tree that does not produce fruit, not just fruit, but good fruit, it will be cut down. See, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were willing to make a public show of repentance. They literally came down in the desert where where John was, and they were even willing to allow him to baptize them. But this was an outward show because inwardly, uh, they had no intentions of making any changes in their life. Jesus continued to talk about the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 23, And we see like a recurring theme with this group. Matthew 23 verses 27 and 28. Hmm. Jesus said this to them. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you all are like whitewashed tombs, which Indeed, appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear to be righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lawlessness. See, one of the things that we have to remember that during the uh, intertestamental time or during the period of silence, the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, a lot of times uh, the descendants of Abraham would automatically feel as though that they would inherit the kingdom by virtue of their relationship with Abraham. And so when you think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were in the same mindset. They felt that they were connected to their, to the patriarch Abraham. And that means that they automatically get in without 
changing their minds or their actions or attitudes. Today, today, many people trust in an outward show of religiosity. We go to church, we pray, we give, we even serve. Sometimes we even get baptized. But all without a genuine turning away, a genuine with, uh, repentance in our hearts and in our minds. And we find ourselves struggling, trying to live the Christian life. How many know that Jesus never intended for us to try to live the, the Christian life? Jesus intended for us to be in him and he be in us. I know that's a little bit different in grammar, a little ebonics, but he intends for us to live out the Christ life in him. So, so the root of sin is self-centeredness. This is when self is at the center of my life and the root of righteousness, listen well, is Christ. This is when Christ is at the center of my life. So how do I know? How do I know I'm going to church, I'm going to small group, I'm reading books. How do I know that Christ is squarely the center of my life? I would suggest this, that when I feel as though I need to get my way, when my opinion becomes uh, what I'm trying to accomplish, uh, that's an indicator that we may need to reevaluate who is really in the center, who's really in control. See, Jesus came to chop down the root of our sin, which is our self-centeredness. Repentance then means that we turn around from a life of, self, of being centered on myself to a life that's being centered in Christ. Whenever the focus is on self, we're operating in the same attitude as Lucifer. What? Who became Satan and the progenitor of sin. So in Isaiah 14... Uh, we have recorded the fall of Lucifer, and some of you know this by uh, verbatim, but let me just read beginning in verse number 12. It says, Isaiah 14, verse number 12, it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation uh, on the farthest sides of the north. And I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So what was going on in Lucifer's mind? See, Lucifer was intoxicated with his own self-centeredness to the point that he thought that he was the central attraction in heaven. He thought that his feelings and his ratings and his likes and his desires and his aspirations were more important than God. See, what he saw as his assets actually became his liabilities. And literally, they then became the root of his demise because his mind was daily being renewed in self-centeredness. 
Every day, our mind is being renewed in something. In something. And see, the, the, the trick and the deception of the enemy is that he, he wants us to feel as though, well, if I just go about my day and I don't do anything that I think is sin, everything is okay. But the culture has a way of literally um, expressing upon us its own ideologies and philosophies. And so if we don't, if we're not proactive, we will find ourselves being renewed in the mindset of the world and don't even realize because we're choosing to spend time in the world system rather than spending time in God's kingdom. Hmm. See, many problems in our lives would be solved if we would see the root of our sinfulness as our self-centeredness. Many problems in our marriages uh, happen and they persist because they, there is a stronghold of self-centeredness in either one or both of the spouses in the marriage. And they're literally trying to live together while serving each other's wills and each other's ways. Self-centeredness is an enemy of biblical unity, unconditional love, and godly worship. I'm going to say that again. Self-centeredness is an enemy of biblical unity, unconditional love, and godly worship. That's why Jesus makes a statement in Matthew 16, 24. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. One of the challenges when we live in a democracy, we really want things our way. We, we want our rights executed in our own life. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're teaching on the kingdom is because we want everyone to understand when we come to Christ, we're coming into his kingdom and it's a theocracy. He is the king and we have to learn how to submit our will to the will of the king. What Matthew is literally saying here, it means that we must put self to death. There is only one throne in our lives. Either, either self is on that throne or Christ is on the throne. A prerequisite for following Christ is submitting to the process of bearing our cross. And we start talking about bearing crosses, you know, people get a little itchy, you know, because it's not wearing a cross for a decoration with your outfit. See? Uh, this is a twofold responsibility. Christ followers must be willing to die to self in order to follow Jesus. And this dying to self is called, is a call to an absolute surrender to God's will. It's an absolute surrender to God's will. And then there is a next part to this dying process. The next part is this. Then we must publicly profess faith in Christ by literally sharing the message of the cross to others. It's a twofold. See, we cannot come after and be joined and unified with Christ when we are joined and unified with self. Dying to self also means starting anew. <laughs> That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is passed away and behold, the new has come. 
So when we come into God's kingdom, we should not have the same characteristics and behaviors and attitudes as when we were not in God's kingdom. There should be a distinction in how we deal with ourselves and how we deal with others. But when we act the same as we did when we weren't in crisis, because we still have allowed self to be on the throne of our lives. See, the world is full of unrest because self is at the center of people's hearts and minds. This is confirmed in our attitudes towards one another. Just look at the media feeds today. Just look at the conflicts in the nations today. Just look at the conflicts in cultures, in ethnic groups. Just look at the conflicts in families, in churches, in businesses. Self is on the throne. Families and churches and cities uh, will lack real peace if they are unwilling to dethrone self in their lives. We must surrender our egos and self-importance and stop worshiping and serving our favorite idols, which is self. We must dethrone it. We must then enthrone God back to his rightful place in our hearts and in our minds. See, self-centeredness greatly impedes our spiritual growth because the whole emphasis of the scripture is based on relationships with God and with one another. So here is the great command. Here is the great command. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, beginning at 36. Jesus answered and he says this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest command, and the second is equally important, church. You must love your neighbor as yourself. What if we really not just read this stuff, but we say we're going to actually live this stuff? How? How different the the world would start viewing the church if just in the church we actually start living this stuff. See, See, when related to others, we're actually instructed to, to live a certain way. The Bible teaches that we must love others. We must serve others. We must honor others. We must help others. We must serve others, encourage others. We must admonish others, restore others. And watch this, we must forgive others. It will be increasingly difficult to faithfully minister to others while focusing on ourselves. The deception is that we think we can. Jesus could not have redeemed us if he was focusing on on himself. And how we know that is we go back and we look at the temptation and then we look at the garden of Gethsemane. Because even when he was challenged, He still surrendered. Nevertheless, not my will. Here are some hazards to self-centeredness that I think we should make note. Some hazards. These are are very detrimental. Self-centeredness causes compromise. Oh, Jesus, help us. Self-centeredness brings corruption. Self-centeredness leads to moral failure. 
And fourthly, self-centered choices negatively affect our legacy. The self-centered life comes from the world, the flesh, and the enemy, the devil. Self-centeredness and selfish ambition, it is a design to be first. It is the longing to have the superior or controlling position. It is being self-exalting. You know, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but um, one of the biggest challenges in marriages is when we wait too long to discover this. And we feel as though that in the marriage, we still get to live our self-centered lives. And we struggle and we fight and we become, we, we become frustrated because we don't understand the principle of being one. The principle of being unified. The only reason why Jesus Christ could be married to the church is the fact that he chose to give up his will. And the only way that marriages remain strong and whole is when we choose to give up our will and serve his will. I don't know who that was for, but we'll keep moving on. The scripture tells us about the self-centered life in James 3. James 3 uh, verse 14 says this. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambitions in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth that that's the way you are really. 15 says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For when we have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Focusing on God means that we're willing to fall in the background. We're willing to allow him to take center stage. Because self-centeredness or selfishness is not a quality of God's kingdom. James says in verse uh, 16, he says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, or you could say uh, self-centeredness, there you will also find some cousins of self-centeredness, like disorder and evil practice, right? Hmm. In the great command, Jesus asked us to love God with all and then to love others with the same passion that we love ourselves. See, what I love about the great command is there's no room for self. He says, love God, not with some of ourselves, not with 85%, not with 75%, but with 100%. Love God with all. And then I'm going to love my neighbor with, as I love myself, which implies I'm going to love my neighbor uh, with all. Paul continues to write on this topic. Last scripture, Romans 8, beginning at verse 14. I'm going to read this from the uh, Common English Bible, which is an interesting translation. Paul writes these profound and powerful words to the church about self-centeredness. 
And he says, reading from the Common English Bible, he says, people who are self-centered aren't able to please God. Everybody get that? (laughs) But you aren't self-centered. Instead, you are in the spirit. If, in fact, God's spirit lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. If Christ is in you, the spirit is your life. I'm going to say that again. If Christ is in you, then the spirit is your life because of God's righteousness. But the body is dead because of sin or the flesh is dead because of sin. Verse 11 said, if the spirit of the one who raised Christ, uh, Jesus from the dead lives in you. The one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also. Though his spirit, through his spirit that lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it isn't an obligation to ourselves. To live for ourselves, but uh, on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if you live by the spirit, you will Put to death the actions of the body and you will live. The last verse 14 says, and um, all who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and God's daughters. It says self-centered people cannot please God. So do we think that this is an important topic? And, and if we follow trends of popular messages in churches, this is one of them that we don't really hear a lot. But God has called us and is calling us to be true disciples of him, which means we are called to be those that will represent and reflect the character of Christ. When I was preparing for this message, it was so convicting And I wept because there were times when even as I was communicating in my home, I was clearly thinking about my own self. And when I think about how diametrically opposed that is to Christ, God had to check me. And he said, son, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that your will would be on the throne of your life. He died on the cross so that you would learn to submit to my will. And so self-centeredness is a vice. It's an enemy. It's a stronghold in the body of Christ. And we must make sure that we are evaluating our lives and that we're not, <clears throat> we're not living out of a self-centered mindset. Amen? Amen. Let's thank